This episode and the next few episodes are kindly sponsored by the human rights team at Lee Day & Co Solicitors. Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Billy Bragg, a musician, a thinker and an activist. And he has a new book out called The Three Dimensions of Freedom. And I thought it'd be interesting to have him on to discuss it. And it's a great discussion. The Better Human podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. You can learn more at gold.act.uk forward slash law. If you find the podcast interesting, then please consider supporting it via Patreon, patreon.com forward slash better human. And just a couple of pounds a month would help make this podcast sustainable and make sure we can carry on doing interesting interviews about human rights. If you want to contact me, you can on adam at betterhumanpodcast.com and you can follow us on Twitter at behumanpodcast. So, Billy Bragg, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Good to be here, Adam. We're going to talk about your new book, um, The Three Dimensions of Freedom, which is, I, I guess, something between a, a pamphlet, a polemic, a philosophical treatise. Like, what, yeah. what led you to write it? I love starting an argument, Adam. That's partly why I'm here. So, Bertolt Brecht said that art is not a mirror with which to reflect society, but a hammer with which to shape it. And... Each artist chooses their own hammer. Mine happens to be songwriting. Uh, but all of us, in order to shape the world, anyone who's tried to shape anything with a hammer will know that you need a, a, a sturdy anvil in which to, to, to make that thing into the shape you want it. And I would argue that the anvil that we use uh, when, we're, when we're trying to shape the world, the anvil is accountability. We're trying to call out injustice, we're trying to highlight hypocrisy, we're trying to get some solidarity behind an idea to build a wave among our listeners that can lead to genuine change because art can't change the world, music can't change the world, that's a, that's a lovely idea but the people who came up with it smoked a lot of dope and sadly they weren't really as focused as they could be and after 35 years of trying I have to tell your listeners that the world doesn't change through singing songs, it changes through people taking action and my job is is to try and inspire my audience to to engage in the world in whatever way that they can so accountability has always been a very big issue to me I was a, a, a an original signa signatory of Charter 88 back in the old days I got heavily involved in New Labour's plans to reform the House of Lords uh, in the light of the Wakeham Commission it's always been on, on my radar and over the last couple of years with the arrival of Donald Trump that lack of accountability um, is like a, sadly now, like a house on fire. And those of us who are concerned about those things need to, uh, need to up our game because the, you know, the, the urge to just stay in bed and pull the duvet over your head is sometimes overpowering. So instead of just carrying on writing songs about it, uh, I decided to, to write. It's a short book. My, my book before was uh, 120,000 words about Skiffle. So this was a little bit more. I was trying to write something in the spirit of Thomas Paine. One of my favourite um, polemicists is George Orwell. He wrote a book called The Lion and the Unicorn, a very similar short um, polemical book in, in uh, 1940. 
So with, with that in mind. And the thing about Orwell's book and Payne's book is that they are very much their own personal feelings. They're not constantly uh, referring back to Aristotle and such points. They're trying to articulate something in the here and now, at this moment, rather than relying on uh, what's gone before. They assume that people, I assume that people understand that. So it's a very personal view. Yeah, and, and I mean, I would also say that law, lawyers and law can't change the, the world either, and it's only really... I guess we all have a role to play. I think we'll have a role to play, Adam, but ultimately it, it's down to the mass of people. It's the social movement. It that, is. That, that's that, what it that, is, yeah. That make the change. Yeah. And we're at kind of either ends of that process. Yeah. I'm at the stirring up end. You're at the legislative end, you know, making it into law. We have our role to play, but without those people in between, you know, you're not going around listening to my records and thinking what, course, what cases to take to court. It's the people out there. They, they really have the power. And part of my job is to try and get my audience to understand that and not to imagine that just by coming to my gig and singing my songs, they've done their bit. You know, people hate it when you say music can't change the world. They hate it because they know that music moves them emotionally. And I'm, yeah, I'm totally into that. I get, you know, when I come off stage, people singing Power in a Union, which is usually what I close with, everyone's got their fists in the air. My activism is right charged, right up, 100%. But my job is to make the audience go, I'm feeling like that. But they're... They're fired up as well, so that they're, you know, re-engaged. Because our, our biggest enemy out there, those of us who want to change the world, isn't capitalism or conservatism, it's cynicism. And that's our, our challenge, how we overcome our own cynicism. Because, you know, the Daily Mail, Rupert Murdoch, they want you to think that nobody cares about this shit. They want you to think you're on your own. They want you to think that none of this will happen. And we have to overcome that. And one of the ways of doing that is coming in a room with a load of people who are expressing their solidarity with an idea like there is power in a union. And I draw from that, and I hope the audience draw from that and take that home. Uh, and then when you know it doesn't change the world yourself, you think to yourself, well, what more can I do? Can I, can I do more to push forward these ideas? And the book is a manifestation of that. So you've got this, the, the book's called The Three Dimensions of Freedom. So freedom is the, is the overarching mm -hmm. idea. And underneath this are three aspects. And the three aspects are liberty, equality, and accountability. And I thought it'd be useful to start where you start with liberty. Um, and I mean, in one sense, what your my, my reading of, of this section of the book is that this idea of liberty is really important, but on its own, it goes to bad places. And do you want to just sort of elaborate yeah, on that? Yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, liberty is absolutely the bedrock of freedom the right to express your opinion, the right to behave in, in a way that, you know, without anyone uh, uh, having control over you. These are, these are you know, if that, if that is not present, then there, there really is no, no real concept of freedom. However, everybody has that right. So whilst liberty empowers you to express yourself, you also have a, a reciprocal responsibility to respect the freedom of others. And that's where, that's where equality comes in. So that, that kind of sense of, of respect for other people is absolutely crucial to a free society. And I would argue that liberty without equality is nothing more than privilege. If you can just say whatever you want with no respect for anybody else and no comeback, uh, that's, 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 that's not liberty, that's Donald Trump's Twitter feed. And, and Trump, in his constant barrage of, of, of Twitter is really proof that liberty 
and freedom are not are not the same thing. Trump opens the book, right? He's, uh, of course, I don't. I probably wouldn't have written the book if if it wasn't for Trump because he's out there all the time. People can see him. He's like a lightning rod for these kind of debates. Well, I mean, I read this and then I I got the audio book, so I wanted to hear you reading it, which I which I really recommend. Um, and when it opens, I heard the audio book before before yeah. I read it. And when it opened, and and the quote is, "When you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything." And I forgot that was Trump. I thought, <laughs> is, I thought, is that Billy Bragg saying that? You know, because it could be any, any yeah, of course, you could yeah. take it from yeah. any artist. Yeah, of course. But it's Donald Trump. And then followed by Tony, Tony Benn, um, which is a great quote. If one meets a powerful person, ask them five questions. What power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interest do you exercise it? To whom are you accountable? And can we get rid of you? And, and it's, it's those two, those two. Different perspectives. Beacons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in diff of different yeah. parts of the yeah. book. And I guess. And, and I think it, it seems like Trump for you is this it epitomizes liberty without equality and accountability. Yeah, exactly. He, yeah. he is. And, and, and you talk about agency quite a lot. Yes. In terms of liberty. And, and can you explain what you what you mean by liberty and agency being the same thing? I don't think that they're the same thing. I wouldn't argue that liberty and agency are the same thing. But I, I would argue that liberty uh, without accountability leaves us in a, in a situation where we feel that we are free, but we don't actually have any agency over our lives. Um, part of the book is a critique of uh, neoliberalism, the idea that the, the market has the answer to all of our problems, social problems, economic problems, um, even sometimes spiritual problems. And that, of course, is, you know, when a, when, a, when a government minister says, as I heard one say in front of me on a TV programme and I was waiting to go on and play a song, when asked, um, this is a Conservative minister, asked by Andrew Neil whether or not they would, uh, thinking about putting up um, a children's allowance, and he said, we'll have to see what the markets think about that. And I don't remember voting for no markets. You know, I don't remember. That, that's a... That's a uh, a way of shirking the accountability. So I'm I'm tr trying to f focus on where I see the, the the problem that we face today. And I would argue that many people no longer feel that democracy represents their views. Let's take, for example, it's you know that's absolutely clear with uh, in the United States with Trump. His voters don't feel their voices heard in Washington D.C. I would argue that a lot of the Brexit vote was actually people angry about Westminster and feeling that their voice is not heard. The Gilets jaunes in France are on the streets still because they feel President Macron doesn't reflect their views. Uh, in Germany, uh, they have elections, but the two supposedly opposed parties, the CDU and the SPD, go back into a grand coalition. It's like we have an election here and Labour and Conservatives get into power. So we have another election and whatever the result, they get back into power again. It's... It's democracy and accountability are not synonymous. Their relationship is more like a Venn diagram. And at times of, of consensus in society, there's a lot of overlap. But at the moment, there isn't much overlap. And as a result of that, people no longer feel they have control over their lives. And that's a very dangerous time because I think when, when people feel that they, they have some agency, they can see a better future for themselves and their children. They're willing to work collectively to achieve that better future. But when they feel they have no agency, when they feel they're being ignored, that's when they start to turn inward and that's when they start to see their neighbours as competitors and uh, incomers as the enemy. And so 
you know, particularly in, in our situation in the UK where we have asymmetric devolution, where people in England don't have that extra layer of representation based on proportional representation, which means that everyone's vote counts. When you don't have that, then the, the matchup between accountability and democracy is starting to drift apart. So I, I'm, I'm talking about agency in the book as um, accountability, equality and liberty being the remedy to that sense of helplessness, that sense of not feeling those people's voices heard. Greater accountability, I believe, addresses that problem. It may not solve it, but I'm not here to offer solutions. I'm here to offer suggestions that provide a foundation to build on uh, uh, on that more cohesive society based on respect, uh, responsibility, and most importantly of all, reason. And, and neoliberalism, in, in, this, say in the first section about liberty, and you talk quite a lot of Hayek and, and well, I think, a, 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 Ayn Rand yeah. and, and Thatcher and Reagan. And, and I think your diagnosis of what neoliberalism is, and it's often used in different ways, yeah. neoliberalism, is a society where the market has been allowed to dominate in such a way that the kind of hierarchies are very, are very vertically, are, are, yeah. are very vertical. Yeah. So, and, and that's where agency, agency is given to the business leaders and the politicians and the, and the markets. But then you have this opposite effect yeah. of everybody else. Agency is either taken away yeah. or people feel it's been taken away. Yeah. But either way, it leads to a kind of political nastiness or a, or a culture of yeah. um, people feeling that they, they don't have control. Yeah, and, look, and that kind of it gets expressed in lots of ways which are yeah. quite negative. Yeah, look what happened in 2008. You know, neoliberalism led us, you know, almost to, to economic catastrophe. Who paid the price of that? It wasn't the bankers. It wasn't the people who got us into that trouble. It was the ordinary working people who, who paid the price through austerity. Because what happened was uh, the people in control at the time stepped back and said, well, you know, this is, we've got to make our economy like a, like a uh, you know, your domestic economy. We've got to make the books balance. Countries don't do that. That's not how the modern economy works anymore. You know, it's a, it's a, that Thatcherite idea that, that everything is, is about profit and loss. That's not how you can run a society. There have to be deeper values than that. So um, in terms of, of, of bringing uh, greater accountability, that's, I think that's the place where you have to start, you know, because recently there's been some polls done where people have been asked to choose between freedom and security. And most people have understandably gone for security. And some people have uh, interpreted that as meaning a bigger army and more police on the streets. But if you actually look at the details, the security they're talking about is the security of job, the security of tenure, security of a decent health service. That's the kind of security that people want. And a free market that uh, is deregulated um, to the extent uh, where, you know, companies can become too big to fail um, that's very, very dangerous. You know, the, the adherence of Adam Smith, who I talk a little bit about in the book, who believe there is an invisible hand that will deal with the, the, you know, the companies that aren't viable will go down. Well, that's not the way things have happened. Some companies have been too big to fail. That means that, that free market capitalism no longer works. And it's not, an un, it's not an uncommon thing to find. I mean, just recently, the example of Flybe being given a tax holiday. You know, really, Flybe should have gone bust, but people recognise rightly, and I recognise it because I, I fly out of Exeter. I live down in the West Country. Our crucial Flybe is there. So on one hand, you've got uh, 
neoliberals saying, no, you shouldn't, must never have any uh, nationalisation, you must never, never have any kind of uh, uh, social funding of, uh, of business, and on the other hand, doing exactly that um, against what you think are their principles. And they're, you know, I'm not someone, I've never been a revolutionary, I've never said we should abolish capitalism. But I recognise that, that, you know, I'm, I'm happy to recognise that if, you know, capitalism in a sense is a bit like fire. If you tend it, it will give you heat and light. But if you, if you let it go where it wants to go, it will consume everything in its path. And I think we've had that proven almost to the point of destruction uh, since the, the, the last 40 years, since Thatcher and Reagan and, and the, the ideas of Friedrich Hayek, which I outline in my book, um, have been in control. I mean, it does, it, that does come through that, that you're not recommending a kind of upheaval of the entire system because you actually look backwards to the 1950s and that looms quite large in, in a few different sections of the book and we'll come later to the European Convention on Human Rights and, and, and the way that you talk about that. But the it seems f from my reading that what you're really saying is it's not that capitalism in itself is, is an evil, it's unregulated capitalism or untrammeled capitalism and that there will always be the, the story you tell about the the way that the Hayek, the Free Market Institute and, and, and the different and the different organizations that came about in the 70, 60s and 70s to impose or to implement Hayek's ideas, that there will always be this these countercurrents of um, the free, the most free market capitalists tr attempting to increase the freedom of the markets and their freedom. But if you allow that to happen, I think is what you're saying, yeah. then, or you you don't keep that in check, yeah. then you will lead to two free markets where the bottom end yeah. is becomes f further down and becomes more oppressed. Yeah, Hayek's idea of liberty is the freedom to exploit with no regulation whatsoever. Which wasn't Adam Smith or no, Keynes's No, not at all. at all. Definitely not Adam Smith. Yeah. No. Uh, so it's a perversion, really, of, of, of what Smith was talking about. But that idea that any regulation is bad underpins the uh, argument for leaving the European Union. You know, the idea that red tape from Brussels has held the country back uh, is, has been absolutely key to, to their arguments. Whereas, you know, many ordinary working people Red tape is one, one person's reg red tape is the other person's health and safety regulations. Or maternity rights. Yeah, exactly. Or having a weekend. And so that their, their whole argument by, by trying to bring it down to, to regulations, they are once again making more space for people to be uh, more exploited. You know, uh, you go abroad, even in the United States of America, people have never heard of zero hours contracts. And when you explain it to them, they can't believe it. Now, if the Americans, of all people, you know, you might expect that when you go to Germany or Scandinavia, people will be like, oh, that's terrible. You explain it to Americans, they're like, you're kidding me. So that's, that's the, the problem. This is a reversal. This is going back to the, you know, the, my uh, great grandfather was a docker in the London docks and, and they had a, you know, a situation there where men would assemble outside the gates every day and a bloke would come out and, you know, point to a few people and they'd get work and the rest of them would get nothing. We, we shouldn't be going back to those days. We should be going uh, in the opposite direction. Well, no, it's an app that tells yeah, you. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Instead of the, the guy yeah. pointing the finger, yeah. it's, it's just an app. Yeah, still someone still someone somewhere is making those choices. It's an algorithm. Yeah, yeah. Making well, that's choices. the other reason. I mean, and you know... You come to our, you talk about algorithms. I do, because I think they're also part of the problem. You know, the whoever um, programs the algorithm obviously has their own inherent biases, whichever way they are. And, and we need to be talking about how we deal with those problems as well. Because when the computer says no now, 
you know, that's no longer a joke. That's an absolute uh, serious knockback on your, on your prospects of uh, prosperity. You finish off the liberty section talking about China, um, which I found re really interesting and, and, um, and I think very current. Because I, I think the reason you talk about it is because you're... I'll just, I'll just read a section, um, the, the bit that I was thinking of. Um, While maintaining the veneer of Maoist ideology, the Chinese Communist Party has developed a command economy geared towards consumerism. Um, in the late 1980s, its stated aim was to make China a semi-industrialized country. Now it claims that China will be fully developed nation by that date. It already outstrips the world in terms of manufacturing and exports. Um, and, and yet... It's done it. It's done all this without. I guess it's done. It's done liberty, but it has Hayek's definition of liberty. Yeah, and, and but that's fascinating because that's come out of a communist yeah. ideology where mm. you would have thought yeah. equality well, would be the central. This is this is one of the principle. for me one of the biggest problems about neoliberalism is what we refer to in the book as Tina, the idea that there is no alternative to free market capitalism. Well, um, and that was Thatcher's. Yeah, Chairman Xi has proved that wrong. You know, and what's what's dangerous about that is that, for better or for worse, when uh, Western governments have gone into uh, developing countries, they've they've sent in uh, money and support, but they've also demanded that there there should be, uh, uh, you know, uh, human rights enacted, and and they they ask governments there to to uh, you know, be more respectful of human rights. Well, the Chinese don't really care about that. They'll come and build you a football stadium for nothing, like they were doing in Africa during the Africa Cup of Nations. You don't even ask you at all. So if you're a, 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 a despot in some country anywhere in the world and you need funding and you look to the West and they're saying, yeah, I'll give you some funding, but you've got to have freedom of uh, speech and free press, you look to China and they say, oh, well, we don't really care about that. You know, just, we'll just give you the money. That's much, you know, that, that then makes the... the, the uh, Chinese model of capitalism, the, the authoritarian capitalism, the, the hegemonic model. Which, so our, our idea that we've, we, we can come in with all the answers, we, we suddenly find ourselves at a, not just a social disadvantage, but probably an economic disadvantage because we are wedded to uh, uh, civil liberties. So then the question then becomes, do we in, in the West become more authoritarian? And I think in Donald Trump, you can see that the answer to that is probably yes. Yeah. But in the 80s and, and the 90s, at the end of the Cold War, the idea that, that, uh, that people grabbed onto was that liberalism and capitalism had to come together. Mm. So you couldn't have one without the no. other. You, can't have a, you, can't, you couldn't have a successful capitalist economy yep. without some element of a free middle class. That, yeah. that was the basic idea. Yeah. And it does seem like China, and, and, and we've got... The, mo the, the really sho most ro shocking example, I think, recently is the Unger Muslims. Indeed. And the fact they've got, you know, millions of... Indeed. Of, 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 it's shocking, of, isn't it? Unger Muslims yeah, living yeah. in concentration camps, yeah. sort of re-education yeah. camps. Yeah, um, And there it is. And, yeah. and, and, and nobody can... No, and everyone's trading it. with them. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. everyone's trading with them. They're too big yep. to stop trading with mm. them. Trump is, is not interested no. in human rights as no. an international trading concept nope. it, does, it doesn't matter to no him. bottom line in it there's no bottom line in it so yeah. so that that's the new world order yeah and that is very it's a shock in it but yeah, that, it, it that's is troubling and that's because um, you know there are certain elements within american academia who have a kind of hollywood view of history that it always you know 
that there's always going to be a happy ending. But one of the one of the great tragic things that we know from history is that happy endings aren't guaranteed. On a number of occasions, you know, we've come to situations um, where you know people have believed that there's a you know a, you know think about the Daily Mail supporting Hitler. You know, a new way to deal with these economic problems. It's, you know, there's no guarantee that these things will work out in a positive way in the end. So we have to be very, very careful. And when those things begin to slide, when liberty is, is uh, you know, held up and people say, oh, we have free elections, you know, Putin has free elections. That's, that's not, doesn't mean there's accountability in his yeah, country, I mean, you know. I mean, relatively. Yeah, but I mean, they, they have a constitution. They, you know, these, these things are, are not, don't guarantee uh, that the people have... That the agency that I was talking about. So it's very important that we have a more a, a, a much more focused principle rather than just democracy, because that you know that we've seen how that can be uh, uh, exploited in the, in the most negative terms. Accountability, I think, is a much more powerful idea, and they don't always, as I say, they're not synonymous. You shouldn't expect them to be synonymous. The Better Human Podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month, that's just over £2, via our Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Let's let's move on to equality, which is the second concept the second part of freedom and i think you define it as the responsibility to reciprocate the liberties we enjoy yeah um so reciprocal it's reciprocal it is yeah and and we have to share liberties but you also it it really seems to focus on freedom of speech yeah your, your idea of equality which i find really interesting can you just explain why well, why in the context of the book is that I, whilst uh, making a point about uh, basic fundamental rights, a critique of neoliberalism, a, a tr- an analysis of the way the world is drifting, I'm also trying to write about people's actual lived experience. And for many people uh, in, 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 the, in our, our time, the place that they run up against the question of liberty is in social media discourse. Uh, you know, they're online, they're talking to someone and all of a sudden they find themselves, you know, in an argument being beaten up. You know, the terrible curse of Twitter is that perception always trumps intention. Anyone who doesn't understand that shouldn't really go down, shouldn't really yeah, go mean, down I there. Mean, I mean, I, I bet about the scars. All, all of us, <laughs> all do, of us do, do all well, of us yeah, do, Adam. Um, absolutely. So, you know, that um, is where most people encounter the arguments around the notion of liberty, to be able to... to to say there is a, a breed of what they refer to in the United States of America, free speech warriors, people like, for, for our audience in the domestic audience, someone like Rod Little, and the, writing in The Spectator, uh, a provocateur, uh, someone who's you know coming up with clickbait, Piers Morgan would be another person, you know, outraged at the, the, the prospect of a, uh, a vegan sausage roll, can send him into apoplexy. Um, or manufactured apoplexy. Yeah, well, that's the whole thing. I mean, are they, what, what, you know, political correctness, uh, arguments about political correctness are manufactured apoplexy. There is no such thing as political correctness. It doesn't exist. There's no political party putting it forward as a program. There's no people marching on the streets demanding it. There's no intellectuals in Chicago writing huge, you know, 
essays about it. it it's, it's, I believe it's a trope that is used by reactionaries to police the limits of social change. And I think that's where the battle is in terms of equality at the moment. The right of uh, people to express their views um, is sacrosanct, but they, the right of others to challenge them is also sacrosanct. And so often, people like Rod Liddle, um, their anger is all around the, the fact that they're being challenged for what they're saying. You know, you can't say these kind of things. I mean, I had a right run-in last year with Morrissey and his followers over stuff that he posted on his website with regard to Stormzy's um, appearance at, at Glastonbury Festival headline. He, he cut and pasted a, a, a far-right, a, really a, a racist website that um, talks about the Great Replacement Theory and just slapped it in there in the middle of, you know. And I waited for a week for someone in the music press to pick up on this. Nothing, nothing at all. So I, I just wrote a long Facebook post about it. And really, the, what I was saying was, you know, I, Morrissey has a right to do this. And I respect his right to do that, if that's what he wants to do. But he doesn't have a right to do it without being challenged. He doesn't have a right to do it with no comeback. And that's, that's what equality is, is about, I think. It's about uh, recognizing that um, others have rights. You can't expect to make your statement and, and not be challenged by it. You know, and that, that I mean, that, that works on a number of different levels. Um, you know, that on one hand, you can have a debate with someone online in, in deliberation. And on the other hand, you can find yourself being, you know, uh, having a pylon and, you know, being the, the focus of a, um, of a, a online campaign, uh, which, which is never nice. So you've got to be really clear when you're, when you're, you know, making statements, particularly contentious statements, that, that you're absolutely clear about what you're saying. Uh, and and when someone makes a statement in those terms, you've got to be able to, uh, yourself as, as the recipient of that, you've got to be able to, to respect their right to say that, but also, have, you know, hold them to account for what they're saying. And that's where people don't, don't like being, being taken to task. They don't like the accountability bit. And that's, that's what worries me, because if you have liberty without equality, that's just privilege. That's clearly what it is. You can just say whatever you want, whenever. You, but if you have liberty and equality, but without accountability, that just allows everyone to be an arsehole. That just allows everyone to have a pile on. Accountability is what gives freedom its its teeth. It's what gives freedom its its um. Uh, it's what creates a space within freedom to to deliberate ideas. If you ignore accountability, um. It's very dangerous territory because I think that, that liberty without accountability is the most dangerous type of freedom of all, and that's impunity. And when when people argue about freedom of speech, when they're saying they're arguing about they're complaining about being challenged, that's a that's not a defence of freedom of speech. That's a defence of impunity. And we live in very dangerous times because the president of the United States is a man who's lived all his life. Uh, with impunity, and sadly, I'm sorry to say, the Prime Minister of Great Britain is also a man who's never been held responsible for what he's done in his political life, his professional life, or his private life. He's and been elected Prime Minister. He has said. been elected <laughs> Prime Minister. He said so, so many, so many awful things. He said, but to me, the most, uh, the most troubling was when he said, um, "I am." 
pro having my cake and pro eating it because that's the statement of a man who believes that he has a right to both make the rules and break them whenever it suits him. And that's, that's a very dangerous place to be when someone's in charge of a country, as you can see from Vladimir Putin. Just coming back to this idea of accountability, mm. you, you've, there's two different locations for accountability, I think, in the book. There's the accountability, institutional accountability. So that's regulation of companies, um, democracy, you know, d democratic yeah. institutions. And then there's individual accountability. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot, you're, you're, you're quite heavily focused on speech and this sort of marketplace of ideas yeah. kind of idea. And, and, and I'm, my guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is your life as an artist. Yeah. That is where you exist in the, yeah, the world exactly. of ideas and expression mm -hmm. and counter-expression yeah. and, and, and that. But it not the, the, the individual accountability that you're talking about also responsibility? And, and that kind of, you, you do refer to Tony Blair talking about human rights um, being about yep. responsibility. And, and, and I guess you, you seem to slightly bridle at that. But isn't that I, what I, you're really talking about? I, people taking responsibility for what they say? I think responsibility and accountability are two different things. In the way that we refer to responsibility, we take it as an individual, as I take this glass from the table, I take it. But we hold someone to account. And holding someone implies there's a third party involved in this, that you, from that side of the table, you hold me to account. So yeah, I, I can be responsible for my behavior, but when that's the only, um, the only limit on my behavior is my sense of responsibility, that's dangerous, I don't trust that. Boris Johnson. What right do I have to hold you to account, just as an individual in the world? Well, you're, you know, in terms of uh, what I say uh, and expressing my opinion, you have a right to question what I have to say, you have a right to hold me to account, whether it's here in this, in this setting here, on social media, what I've said in the newspaper. But also, uh, beyond that, there are laws that you can, you can call upon to hold me to account, and there are social mores that you, uh, you know, social mores that you can use to, to uh, hold me to account. There are limits to that. We know, you know, we have, within our society, we have lines that we tend not to trust. They, they're moving all the time, those lines, and you have to, you have to up your, your sensibility the debate within the Labour Party about the problem that they have with anti-Semitism has caused a lot of us to rethink how we address that issue and some of the language that we use, some of the phrases that previously we've thought of are acceptable, clearly in the new debate aren't acceptable. And we've, had to, we've had to revise that thought. Some people bridle at that. Some people don't want to, to change their attitude. They don't want to accept that the other person has the right to say that this behavior is no longer acceptable. They're not willing to see that other perspective, particularly the perspective of the victim. You know, there's a clear example of that on Question Time last week where uh, a, a woman of color who was making the point about uh, racism with regard to the treatment of Meghan Markle and a, and a white man said there is no racism. That, you know, to me, that's, that's an expression of white male privilege, you know, he, he has a right to argue whether or not Meghan Markle was treated racist, but he doesn't have a right to say it doesn't exist. It doesn't have a right to deny the experience of a victim. It was a power play from him, yeah. really, is, is my reading of it, as well as being privileged. He yeah. say it, it's somebody, the, the classic example of, of, the, of the person in the privileged position yeah. ex, ex, uh, exposing their own power yeah. and, and wielding their own yeah. power yeah. over that other person. And, and we see that 
we see that a lot in these kind of debates. And we I, do. And I think, I mean, that, you know, I wish this wasn't so, Adam, but we, we have imported the American notion of the culture war. And um, I think that the culture war is a manifestation of lack of agency for people who um, no longer have or no longer feel their voices heard in, in, in Westminster or, or in Washington, no longer feel they have control over the economic situation that they face, to offer them a tool by which to gainsay uh, people they disagree with, and that tool would be something like the, the, the notion of political correctness. If they feel they can win those, those culture war arguments, they feel they have some kind of little power. But it's insidious because it's, it's people in power who actually have the power to make a difference are deflecting anger away from them uh, onto, the minor, onto a minority so that the minority get the blame for the situation where it's actually the people in power, whether it's political power or corporate power, that, that are to blame for the lack of agency and the economic situation that these uh, bereft individuals find themselves in. So that, that culture war aspect, and we saw it in the, in, uh, starkly in that exchange on Question Time, is unfortunately the currency of debate around freedom uh, in this country at the moment. And that, that I think, is, a, from my reading, at the heart of your equality section, is this idea that if you... that there will always be a backlash against a change in social attitudes... That, that, that that's as, as night follows day that because as soon as you not attempt at, if you bring down a hierarchy the people who are in the high who are high in the hierarchy will either consciously or, or unconsciously react against that because who wants to be brought down especially if they are just that they are just there yeah. they haven't done anything to be there it's yeah. just the way they were born yeah but all of a sudden they are being they feel that they're being brought down or they're being replaced that that white replacement yeah. theory that psychologically is and, and i'm not saying that's that's what's I, I don't believe in that concept i think human rights is much more about expanding the um who is included in society it's not about replacement or hierarchies that's it's really not but as, but that psychological feeling of being brought down, the feeling of being replaced, is so strong that it creates these kind of backlashes. Yeah, and, and when you look at the the, um, the dynamic political movements of the 21st century, uh, you know, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion, they're all accountability movements. They're all about holding people in positions of power, white men. <laughs> exploiting the environment to power you know they're 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 they've, they've risen up as a manifestation of where the power lies and for um you know for privileged white men change is something that happens to somebody else it's not something that happens to them so they bridle when they find that but more, as i say more often than not they are they're they're arguing about being held to account rather than arguing about what it is that uh, that the issue that's hard there. It's all about deflection, political correctness, um, you know, uh, uh, virtue signaling. Now, you know, woke, you know, using that uh, as a pejorative term against people, the woke master general, as they call uh, Ricky Gervais. <laughs> um, they're all deflections. They're all ways of deflection, criticism away from... Uh, themselves and taking not dealing with the issue but dealing with the argument around the issue and so you know I'm, I'm trying to give people with the book the tools by which to refocus the argument in the in the 20th century um for the younger listeners 
we had ideology. You know, we all had our own ideology. Um, people who were interested in politics, whether it was left or right. And what ideology allowed you to do it, it gave you a kind of framework to look at the world so that you could look at an issue and by using your um, ideological perspectives, work out how you, how you felt about that issue, where you felt the, the right was. And that was kind of useful because it was relatively quick and relatively straightforward. We live in a post-ideological world now. So all these debates are going on without any parameters. And what I'm trying to do with the book is suggest that there are parameters that we can have that um, allow us to bring uh, uh, our, uh, our sensibilities to focus on an issue, whether it's a political issue or whether it's that person that you don't know who they are, anonymous person you're talking to in social media, you know. These, these ideas work if you're trying to deal with something like Donald Trump, but also if you're looking at this person who's arguing with you, they have their liberty, that's clear. Do they respect my equal right to uh, express my opinion? Or are they shouting me down and not listening to, you know, listening to my point and responding? You know, are they not, are they not responding respectfully to my point? And secondly, um, if I question them, do they just suddenly attack me, you know, ad hominem attack? Are they willing to make themselves accountable? Because the th thing about accountability, and I think this is what's special about it, is whereas liberty empowers you to express your opinion, equality requires you to reciprocate that. Well, accountability, you both have the right to hold others to account, but you have to make yourself accountable as well. So it is both empowering in the first instance, but also reciprocal as well, that you have to respect uh, people are trying to hold you to account here. And it doesn't work unless you are behaving. And this is something that I try to engage with or to, or to operate on social media is that I, it doesn't work unless you are exactly yourself behaving exactly. in that way. You, because if you're aggressively attacking yeah, somebody, exactly. they will reciprocate and they will add, to, multiply it by but two. My experience in, in dealing with that is you, you find people who are willing to criticize you and be responsible as they're doing it and with those people you can actually learn stuff you can through deliberation you can you know sharpen your perspective where there are other people who are clearly just there to kick your ass and you need to quickly work out which ones you can't engage with everybody you can't engage with everybody because it's just impossible so in in that case you know when I get into trouble there's a few people I respect on Online, yourself being one of them, I followed you on Twitter, and I'm, I, I know that if I if I engage with you, you will give me a reasonable perspective back. It may be critical, it may be uh, you know um, painful for me to read, but I, I respect your your integrity, and I and I'm and I know that you're not just going to start you know being abusive because I think. Uh, Liberty gives you the right to express your opinion. It doesn't give you the right to be abusive. That's For me, the line on that is where attacks become personal. I think everybody has their own line on where that is. But for me, it's when you play the player rather than playing the ball. And I try, it's not easy, I try to play the, pl uh, play the ball all the time on, on, on social media and not, uh, not play the, the player. It's tough because when you're on stage and you're having to deal with a heckler quickly, you got to shut them down quickly. You know, if you can get the audience to laugh at them, that you know, usually shuts them up. So that impulse to come straight back with something, you've got to really, it doesn't work on social media. I've got myself in really, <laughs> some real serious punishment beatings from being being a smart ass. It's my own fault. Yeah, you so, yeah. It, it, I, I, lots to say about that. No, but th thank you. I mean, look, the, the, the feeling's mutual. Appreciate um, that. I mean, 
what you're you seem to have quite a, an, a, a, as I do quite a sort of um complex relationship with social media mm. and it comes out in, in the book um you say for social media users the the freedom the freedom social media offers and op- opportunities to act in ways they would never dare contemplate mm. in the real world face-to-face interactions and and you're particularly worried about anonymity yeah. which you say can create an atmosphere where bullying pylons and abusive language are never far from the surface um the, the cloak of invisibility and, mm. and and i would add to that also the the, the algorithm going back to the algorithms particularly on twitter that what's now put up at the top of news feeds is the aggressive yeah you know um outragey stuff yeah. and it's very rarely the interesting no discussion no. so it's the so it's it's this self-perpetuating yeah um dynamic but what do you think can be done about anonymity because it seems like w- when you say when I say on social media, I think anonymity is a problem. And I've had some serious problems with an- anonymous accounts. Yeah, People say, well, you know, there's a, ne- there's a necessity for people to be able to express their views if they work for the government or, you know, they work for... Well, that's a different thing. We're, we're talking, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. talking about the difference between a whistleblower and a bully. Yeah. You know, if we, you know, if, if you're uh, in that situation and you need to be able to make, make a, a, a point about something that's terribly wrong... You know, you may have an experience yourself, you know, you may have been, let's say, sexually abused and you want to talk about it and you don't want people to know who you are. Well, there should be space for that. What there shouldn't be space for is someone who's been banned from Twitter to just pick another name and go back on again. That's what I'm talking about. That's I've, where I've got someone who's set up more than 50 accounts yeah, yeah. just to reply to me. Really, I'm not ways. surprised. You know, yeah. there's a word for people like that. Um, you know, they're stalkers. They're not really... I mean, I've had a few people like that as well. And I don't like blocking people because I feel that's a failure of accountability. But I know there are people who are just coming into my feeds to pick a fight with me. So I just quietly mute them. And I don't have to look at what they've got to say as well. Because they've made their point and I've engaged with them with their point, generally. They come back the next day, same point. No matter what I'm talking about. I could be talking about something like, you know, what a lovely day is today is a picture of the sun, you know, the sunset today. And in they come and put the boot in about some... Uh, really, really uh, contentious issue. Um, and, you know, it's like the uh, the um, you can't have a discussion about racism anymore without um, angry men coming on and talking about the terrible victims of abuse in places like Rochdale. And that's you know that's those those victims are, are uh, you know what happened if there really were and, uh, you know the reports from last week of the idea that there were fourteen hundred young women who were failed by the police. That is utterly appalling. And of course, I'm totally opposed to that. But, you know, for angry white men to use that as a, you know, to hide behind those women uh, as a way of avoiding being held to account for, you know, racist views that have been expressed by someone else, I, I find that a little bit troubling. So that, you know, and the other side of that is if you actually get onto a troll sometimes, and I've done this a few times, they turn out to be quite reasonable people. And they're like, you know, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean, you know, I didn't really mean to be, you know, so I'm like, oh, it's cool. You know, not all of them, obviously, but some of them I have engaged a little deeper with. And generally, they, they're, they're just people who found the the power of, uh, you know, having a platform and being able to say something, people liking it. And we all like a bit of that. We all, you know, we all enjoy a bit of that. But um, they've found that to be incredibly heady and it's just led them on to say things that they would never, ever say. To not, 
you know, to anybody, not even to even to a stranger. And it and happens by increments. Yes, it, it does. Because, it does. Because they get a few likes for yeah. a slightly more outrageous yeah. thing than they yeah. say. And then they try something yeah. a bit more outrageous. Yeah. And, and then, you know, 10 days later, yeah. they're, they're saying things that are a mile, miles away from yeah. what they would have, anything they would have yeah. dreamed of saying. Yeah. Or there's a pile on, you know, and they, they want to feel part of something. So they go in and, and put the boot in. You and know. validated yep. and part of a community yep. And, yep. and that. That's and the worrying thing about social media. I mean, the yeah. fact that it's there's enough people now who believe the earth is flat that they can go on a cruise. You know, that, that couldn't happen in the old days because they couldn't find each other, people who believe the earth is flat. Now they can. So that's one of the downsides of, of social media. But social media is just a mirror on humanity. Everything is, is there. All the best things are there. I mean, you know, I've, I've uh, you know, I've... I've Read, among my uh, my followers, there's a little group who uh, who call themselves the Saddos, and they have their own Facebook page. And to see them respond to someone who are going, who's going through emotional turmoil, if someone loses a friend, a partner, a child, I'm so proud of them. They are so supportive of one another. And they're giving support to individuals who may feel isolated in their social situation. That's an incredible, valuable resource. So we can't just dismiss the idea of social media. We can't say it's a, it's a, a curse on society. But we do have to be aware that when we go there, there are different rules that apply. And there are, there are elephant traps that we can easily fall into. Uh, and there are um, troubling uh, misconceptions that the things that we say can be easily, easily taken completely out of context. Doesn't it, isn't it another free market that needs regulation? Yeah, exactly. It does need regulation. And without but, regulation, it can go in, in directions that it's the fire that's let to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to burn out. 100%. But like that regulation has to be self-regulation. So how do you do that? You know, you need principles, you need parameters. The reason I called the book The Three Dimensions of Freedom rather than The Three Pillars of Freedom is that I wanted to put forward the idea of creating a space that is safe, and that can be a, a bit of a trigger word for some people, the idea of safe space. But the, the notion of the safe space is not a place where people are banned from expressing their opinions. It's a place where people's opinions are respected. So if you're a provocateur like uh, Mario Yiannopoulos, whose whole shtick is clickbait, basically, you know, when you want to go into a place and offend people, that's, you know, I can understand why uh, university campuses say, no, that's not acceptable. If you're going to come in here, we have these house rules, and those house rules are liberty, your right to express an opinion, equality, you have to respect other people's opinion, and accountability, you have to be expect to be held accountable for what you're saying. That, to me, is a, a practical way of ensuring that, that deliberation occurs rather than screaming and shouting and uh, because the thing about the, the our students today is they're all digital natives they've all seen what can happen if if someone uh, expresses an opinion and gets a gang of people behind them our generation if you don't want me saying so Adam we didn't really experience that so to us a debate sitting down and having a debate was merely that it was a formal occasion often where you sat down and 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 there were certain rules that we accepted. But I think for students now today, the idea of letting someone provocative into their space, they understand the, the enormity uh, and the forces that can be unleashed by that. So they're bound to want to have house rules. You know, every pub landlord has rules about who can come and drink in his bar. And if every time you come and you start a fight, you're going to get banned. 
That's the way things work, you know. There's no law saying about that, but if the landlord wants to have a, a make create a, a place where people, it's conducive to people to come and have a, a social discourse, then he's, he has to have some rules, has to have some house rules. And safe spaces are merely house rules that ensure everybody gets to express their opinion. And in those areas of very, very high contention, sure, there's bound to be some disagreement. I mean, the, you know, the arguments currently around... Uh, uh, you know, transgender rights is incredibly contentious, incredibly contentious. Um, but, you know, again, that's something that could benefit with a little bit more deliberation. One of my, one of my um, concerns about the debate around Brexit is the lack of nuance involved in it. You know, in the European elections, everybody either voted for no Brexit or revoke Brexit. There was no room for nuance. And if anything is going to uh, halt the, the the complete break and the idea of no Brexit, I think it is nuance. It's the nuance of the Irish border. It's the nuance of the 3.1 million EU citizens who live in the UK and made their lives. It's the nuance of our economic and political relationship with the other 27 nations. But nobody seems to be interested in nuance at all. And I find that, I find that very troubling, that everything has become so polarised in the debate uh, that we don't have time to recognise the, the the real detail here. You know, get Brexit done doesn't have much room for for the the grey vagaries of of actually doing Brexit. It's completely polarised, and so really because of that polarisation, that's why I pitched the book into the social media discourse because that's where most of the polarisation is happening. So, so let's move on to accountability. Let's finish with accountability, yeah. um, and it's quite a sort of rich rich idea of accountability. I think that you've that you're proposing um, and you start you, you put Magna Carta as the as the opening salvo in, in in history for accountability this idea that the king is slowly sort of bound I, I sometimes think of Magna Carta and, and that process as like Gulliver being yeah you know being um, bound by lots and lots of tiny little strings till eventually he can't move um, or at least he can't move in the way that, that he wants and you've got, you, you talk about Magna Carta, you talk about 1689 Bill of Rights, you move through to the European Convention and the Human Rights Act. And those two, I mean, I, I like that section of the book, obviously, because that's where the law is coming. Of course, yeah. Um, but that, those seem to be the, the reason you, you appreciate those, um, those Bills of Rights is it seems that they are accountability made into law that can't then be overturned by yeah. the majority or by the king or by the ruler. I mean, I, th I think the history of England hinges on a moment of extreme accountability, the execution of Charles I in January 1649. Before that, law is made by um, uh, absolute monarchy, by the theology uh, on a hereditary principle. After that, the seeds of deliberation and ultimately democracy are planted in uh, in English politics. And I say England because I think that as a, a progressive patriot, I, as, which is how I define myself, what that means is that rather than feeling um, strongly about symbols and institutions and the idea of assimilation to a single idea of what England is, as a progressive patriot, I believe in values and the values that we like to think of ourselves as holding of tolerance, of fairness, are actually rooted in a history of, of dissent against absolute power. 
And that's the thread that runs through our history. And the, and the tradition of dissent in, in English history is as strong as the, as the tradition of, uh, of aristocracy, monarchical power, um, you know, the, the whole uh, idea of empire, the things that are traditionally seen as being the, the things that people feel patriotic about. There's always been this alternative running, you know, the Chartists, the suffragettes, uh, you know, the corresponding societies, the foundation of the welfare state, Brexit, part of it as well. It's not all one way, you know. That, that dissenting tradition, um, <clears throat> I feel very much part of that. And that has always hinged on accountability. You know, the Labour Party is founded by uh, trade unionists who are seeking to hold the employers accountable in the workplace. Socialism is another word for accountability. And because we live in a post-ideological world, words such as socialism come with a lot of baggage, the baggage of totalitarianism. If we want to talk about in broader strokes, as I find myself increasingly doing at gigs and in books, we talk about accountability. Rather than living in a socialist society, we talk about wanting to live in a compassionate society. I find myself talking about these, step back and look at these ideas and try and take the principles that I've always held and articulate them in their, in their most primal form. And accountability in our culture, in English culture, has always always been a, a, a driving force. And as we move into a time where, where, like it or not, nationalism is coming to the fore again, I think we have to make those alternative traditions visible to ensure that the, the right, the far right, the racists, the xenophobes don't capture the idea of what England is. Because in some ways... England is, at the moment, for a lot of people, I think, a bit of a blank sheet. And it gives us a space in which to perhaps begin to come to terms with the legacy of the British Empire as a separate thing, in the way the Scots have in, in, in the last 40 years. They have somehow managed to re-articulate their national identity in a way that is a lot more um, inclusive. And at the moment, I think, for many people, particularly people of colour, English is a bit of an ethnic identity. It shouldn't be like that. You know, if Englishness is going to be anything, and it may actually be nothing, it may be an intangible thing that doesn't exist, like dark matter. Um, if Englishness is going to mean anything, it surely has to be about place, not race, about where you are rather than where your grandparents are from, about everything that happens within that space that we call England. And from that basis, we can't... If we're going to find a new space, we can't go into that without any knowledge of history whatsoever. Because to do that, we're giving ammunition to those people who have a much narrower definition of, of what our national identity is. We need to connect with that and say, look, there's a rich tradition here of opposition to absolute power. In the old days, it was the absolute power of the monarchy. In the last uh, 200 years, it's been the absolute power of, uh, of capitalism. And this is the, it's the same argument. It's the same challenge. And once... It was impossible to conceive of governance without absolute monarchy. And now, you know, for some it's impossible to conceive of, of uh, the economy without free market capitalism. It's the same kind of challenge. And I think those, those resonances are really, really important rather than just rejecting it, which the, the left have always had a bit of a tin ear for national identity, apart from Orwell. Um, and so that, that has to be part of the equation as well, that I draw... Uh, uh, strength from my tr dissenting tradition to make these arguments today 
uh, in a way that I think is as important to me as it is to those people who have a more traditional idea of uh, um, what patriotism means. One of the ideas that, that popped into my head, which I hadn't properly thought of before, but came out of the way that you present your argument, is that the is that Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights, the European Convention on Human Rights, that these are all in a way market interventions in the, in the same way that you know the, the you know the the regulation of the financial markets that these are that naturally if left to our own devices we are inequality yeah. hierarchy is is where we end up on a social inequality and social hierarchy yeah whereas human rights take an opposite view which is that we are all fundamentally deserving or you know we we inherently have a humanity which has to be respected and a certain we, we need to be allowed to flourish we can't be discriminated against we have to be allowed to speak and that goes mm. back to free speech speak in the public space yeah. and express ourselves and and that accountability maybe that's not what you intended but it seems to come out of a it's a regulation of our natural instincts Mm. Um, and which makes us something better as a result. Is that is that a fair description? Well, it, cre it creates a level playing field. And that's, you know, you, you can't really prescribe. This isn't a left-wing argument I'm making. It's a, it's a, a universal argument. And, uh, and the people that I fundamentally disagree with, you know, but to get back to the uh, quote that's attributed to Voltaire but actually was invented by one of his biographers, I, I don't agree with what you say, but I'll fight for the death to your right to say it. I mean, that's, a, that's a, a, an expression of a fundamental belief in equality, not fundamental belief in being able to say whatever you want to say. It's all about equality, that. And I think you're, you're right in the sense that I'm not, I'm not trying to prescribe something here. I'm trying to create that space. I'm trying to offer the foundations on which to build a society based on respect, based on responsibility, uh, based on on reasonable deliberation, those things it seems to me are missing. And uh, to get back to what I was saying earlier about um, Breck's idea of art as a hammer with which to shape society, part of that process is to talk about things that are missing, to identify things that are not there that should really be there. And so, in with the book, I'm trying to draw attention to that that that. Um, ideas that we have hitherto taken for granted, like liberty, like equality, um, and like uh, accountability, are being diluted by the economic system, but also by a, a, an authoritarian tendency that, that is resisting change by refusing to be held to account. Um, so it's, it's not so much I'm, I'm trying to... Uh, offer the, the answer to these problems. I'm just trying to create that space, that three-dimensional space, hence the three dimensions of freedom, that three-dimensional space in which we can sit down and talk about these things and find consensus and find a way forward based on that rather than, for instance, on the, the referendum, uh, a winner-takes-all uh, answer that, that you know, has occurred on a, on a tiny majority and has, has fractured our country. So there's a there's a healing in, in in this book, a suggestion of a healing, an offer for uh, uh, the creation of a space in which we can come together to all of us be heard. You know, a little bit like the um, the idea of the citizens assembly 
I'm a big fan of that. I, I, I was concerned, although I would like, ultimately, I recognise that, they're, they're, you know, the, 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 probably the only way we were going to stop Brexit was to have another referendum. I worried that that would just be as divisive as the last one. And that I felt that a citizens' assembly was a much better way to approach it. Because even if the citizens' assembly decided we should have another referendum, it would come from a place of consensus. It would come from a place where where everybody's been allowed to express their view because you'd want the Citizens' Assembly to be broadcast live on the internet so everyone could hear that their, you know, everyone's views were being expressed. Um, sadly, that hasn't happened. But what is encouraging about the, um, <clears throat> the, the leadership, uh, Labour leadership campaigns is a number of candidates have spoken about the idea of... of greater accountability, the idea of using citizens' assemblies, the idea of reforming the House of Lords, the idea of making people's vote count. You know, I was really um, excited about Clive Lewis as a candidate because he seemed to be talking about those issues, and I was very sorry when he didn't get on the ballot. But now, you know, other people, both, you know, Rebecca Long-Bailey, who's allegedly the Corbyn candidate, but also Jess Phillips, who you could argue is more, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum, they're both talking about that. So I'm, I'm really interested that the Labour Party might be beginning to grasp that nettle and understand that in, in modern politics, accountability is really an issue. It's, it's, it's not a clearly defined single issue, but it's the issue that joins the dots through a number of things that are causing us uh, a lot of problem. And the fundamental uh, uh, problem that's at the bottom of that is the lack of agency that people feel. Accountability is a way of uh, addressing that, but it has to be—it has to be real. It can't be window dressing. It has to be, let's say, you know, uh, uh, regional assemblies for for England with the same powers as Holyrood, a Scottish Parliament. You know, where people really feel that they have some say in their lives, where they really feel that their vote means something, where they really feel that their voice is heard, where everything isn't dominated by what happens in London or by the sheer demographic size of London. You know, that's why I'm not in favour of an English parliament because that would just make London even more powerful. You know, we need to, to, to break things down, send devolved power away from Westminster. Um, you know, there's even an issue there for having a written constitution. One of the interesting anomalies of our revolution in the 1640s is that it occurred before those concepts of individual rights had developed by an Englishman, Thomas Paine, uh, wasn't born even then, um, and others obviously, but, but that's in part of our tradition as well. And because of that, we have an anomaly where our Bill of Rights is an agreement between Parliament and the Crown. We don't have any documents in our constitution that begin, we the people, uh, which I think makes it uh, a real uh, problem because any, any uh, government with a simple majority in the House of Commons can alter the constitution. And really, uh, at, its, at its heart, a constitution should be a set of rules by which the people consent to be governed. They shouldn't be the gift uh, or, or the, the, uh, in, the, in the power to be altered by someone who has a simple majority based on only you know, a minority of the vote. And people must need to be able to find them as well. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I've spoken about this in another podcast, but I, I totally agree. I think it is time for yeah. some kind of a written constitution. And the, 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 the trouble with the Supreme Court at the moment, you know, people arguing with the, uh, you know, with, particularly with the ruling on the prorogation of Parliament and they're going to want to get rid of it. You know, the Supreme Court are just VAR. You know, they're just, <laughs> they're just much better at 
working out where the line was and people hate it. They hate VAR yeah. because it's impeding the game, they say. But they it is enjoy the spectator, the, 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 the entertainment of exactly. seeing people making choices on the cuff and, and doing things quickly. But, they, but yeah. detail and nuance are crucial whether it's in, a, in a, a, a sporting competition or whether it's in uh, the, the laws of the land. And, and that's why they're getting so much uh, stick, I think, the Supreme Court, because they have been now, because they've been changed from how it used to be within the House of Lords, going in to be something separate. They have become like VAR. You know, they become a, 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 they're, they're without the game. You know what I mean? They're not, they're not sat there in, in the House of Lords. The VAR ref is not sat there at the match. He's not got the atmosphere. He's not got the crowd baying for him to make the, the, the decision they want. He's doing it in isolation. He's looking very much closely at the detail. I have to say I'm a bit ambivalent about VAR. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that's, I mean, that, I, you know, that's bound to be contentious, particularly in a country without a written constitution. So I think there's, there's grounds to look at that. In some ways, incorporating the European Convention was a cop-out because I think Parliament always knew if it wanted to, it could leave. And that's where it's come to. And I, I genuinely fear what the, the Conservatives might do in trying to write their own Bill of Rights, that it might be something much more... Um, the, the rights might be limited in, in some way around, around certain issues and, and not universal because, you know, I, I don't have to tell you this kind of thing, or probably not your listeners either, but, but um, the most important aspect of the Universal Convention of Human Rights... It's not the rights or the humans or the convention, it's the universal. And, you know, that that aspect of it is always going to be contentious. I think that's a great place to, to leave. Obviously, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> There's a surprise. Um, but th th thanks so much for coming on the podcast. That's it's good to talk to you, Adam. Really interesting. Thank you very much. And, and, and the book is called The Three Dimensions of Freedom. And yep. it is um, it's excellent. It's well worth reading. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks so much to Billy Bragg for an absolutely fascinating discussion. You can buy his book on Amazon and in all good bookshops, The Three Dimensions of Freedom. Thanks to the podcast editor, Samantha Bruff, and the research producer, Natasha Holcroft-Eames. If you want to support the podcast and make sure it's sustainable, please go to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. You can contact me at adam at betterhumanpodcast.com with suggestions or comments, and you can follow us on Twitter at BeHumanPodcast. I've been Adam Wagner. This has been the Better Human Podcast. See you next time. This episode and the next few episodes are kindly sponsored by the human rights team at Lee Day & Co. Solicitors. We're the jub jub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the manxome foe he sought, till rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And while in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock, with eyes of flame, came whiffling through the tolgy wood and burbled as he came. Yeah, that's, that's better than what you have for breakfast. Yeah, I, I'll that, get bored of that. that and also, it sometimes takes longer than that, you know. And, <laughs> and it impresses the shit out of Americans. I think it's Anglo-Saxon. They think that. Yeah, yeah, they think, yeah. I always say, oh, it's, it's from, you know, the, the Anglo Saxon Chronicle. And they're like, wow. the Anglo Saxon Chronicle. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, whatever that. Yeah. Brilliant.